This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. Alrighty, guys. Welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast, part two of our cleanup questions. We actually had one added from one of our Patreon users. Thanks for adding that in there. So we've got about four or five questions to get through today. So you'd think it'd be quick, but a couple of these are going to be pretty heady, I think, including one that is everybody's favorite topic in magic. Anyways, let's get started. Yep. Uh, so this is actually kind of the impetus for a lot of these questions. We uh, we kind of both thought about this independently, but with the way MTG Finance is kind of working and the reserve list finally seeing the kind of collector pop that we expected because we are looking at early set hype as well, which means collectors are finally here. It's not just uh, whales or people eating at the reserve list. The collectors are here. Are we going to be looking personally at other games? Pokemon, uh, Flesh and Blood, what have you. Um, and if you have an opinion on one or the other, where do you think you would look for you know, financial gain? For me, I don't know much about Flesh and Blood, and I kind of fell into the same camp that I think it was Ben Blywis came out as a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, which is there are a lot of talking heads. What is this game? There's no hype to it. Can anybody explain why first that boxes of this one set are selling for almost a grand? And it's not like I have limited brain capacity, but I already know the idiosyncrasies I need to know about Watsiera Pokemon. I know there's the nostalgia push there. I know there's money to be made there still. We haven't seen oh, yeah. the final push here. And that's where I refocus some of my external non-magic-based funds. Things that I'm moving into, like CK trade lists, are still probably going to go towards reserve list odds or ends or just old cards that I don't have sets of yet that I would like because I'm the kind of person that wants to play a reset. You know, I like... What is it? Not solidarity. Maybe it's solidarity combo. I can't remember the name of the deck. Uh, yeah, reset just, high tide. Yeah, that's there's, great. Exactly. There's just things I want overall. So that money is staying there, but my external funds or my extra funds that I'd be using for collection buys, where is that probably going to be going? And aside from magic singles to play, it's going to be Watsi era Pokemon from uh, locals when I find it, because I think that still has a way to go. And the last thing that really pushed me in that direction, and this next next episode of Quick Hits uh, will come out where I think we touched on it, the like million plus dollar box bust that Logan Paul did got its own unique slab. It ha it has its own unique identifier on the slab as uh, Logan Paul bust or something like that. Yeah. So if stuff. there's still so many eyes on this there's still so many people operating the space it's getting a lot of coverage watsi era is where i want to be because i think there's a lot more room to play do i think all of watsi era is great no i really think prior to rocket is where you would want to be so that's just base jungle fossil base two rocket kind of goes off the rails a little bit and gets weird with the 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 play patterns so there's kind of this like bad taste in people's mouths the art is pretty interesting, but the gameplay devolves, and it seems like people don't care to open those sets as widely on camera as they do the first four sets, that including base two. So that's where uh, I'm looking in regards to additional finance opportunities between the two or anything else really. I think Pokemon is infinitely more viable than Flesh and Blood because, like, as Ben said, flesh and blood, there's nothing. Like, I remember the last Gen Con we had in person, rest in peace, uh, Argent Saga was huge. And it was actually picking up a lot of steam, and then COVID happened. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, oh, never mind. Yeah. Uh, I guess all this hype is dead now because COVID. Which, sure, it happens. Mm -hmm. That said, that game actually had an upswelling of players and stuff that wanted to play it. We don't have that with Flesh and Blood. Okay. So I think that were I to go the game route, I would very much go where you are. Uh, I'm actually going into Pokemon Sealed for modern Pokemon okay. because it's incredibly hot and I can still get it at wholesale. Mm -hmm. uh, or relatively wholesale. But... I think that of the two, if you're trying to get into something, stay away from Flesh and Blood. Gameplay is really good. I'll admit it. I've played it. 
like I played a demo that last year before pre-COVID, they literally sent to my LGS, they said, hey, if you order one box, literally one first edition box, Mm -hmm. we will send you a case of starters so you can have them for free to demo this game. That's cool. Which I thought was awesome, but like there was no support for that then. And I wonder how viable it's going to be once all of these talking heads are gone and once Channel Fireball is done supporting it, because I think, maybe I'm wrong, they wanted to get in on something besides Magic, similar to how Troll cornered the market on Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! Yeah. And it was too late for Channel to break in. Yeah, like Channel uh, has Channel Pokemon, which was, you know, they've had Pokemon articles here and there, but they can never really get a market foothold in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm actually doing sealed Pokemon. And for personal, mm-hmm. uh, I've been going into lighting money on fire by getting Dallas Cowboys cards because I like bad teams. Are you, do, are you doing full sets or are you just going for uh, superstars? Uh, t- team sets and okay. superstars. Drew Pearson's my guy, the original Hail Mary. So I've got a case over here yeah. of like all Drew Pearson's. So, oh, fair enough, yeah. yeah like... Of the sports cards that I have, I was never really one to just go out and buy like rookies and second years or um, entire years worth of box sets like my like my dad did. Like he would get factory sets. They're they yeah. used to be referred to in sports cards. I don't know if they still do. Yeah, and you can get like you could get like all the way down to AAA in baseball if you wanted to the Ultra Pro yeah. factory set, which was every card yep. Ultra Pro released that year. Like that, that was, was great. That was my dad. I just bought team sets, so I have like four yeah. or five, maybe six different like. Yankees team sets floating around. So, yeah. Um, yeah the, but to, to touch on Flesh and Blood, I thought it was actually kind of interesting. So there's all like the, the talking head stuff going on around the first edition of whatever set that was that just spiked on eBay all of a sudden. And then Channel Fireball threw in one of their emails. And I was like, eh, come on, guys. This one's a little sus. Like, you got LSV who's <laughs> working at Direwolf pushing Eternal, Legend of Runtara's, where a lot of other people seem to be moving for a digital yeah. game. And like, before. Like, shortly after they really supported their own Pokemon channel, they started pushing Flesh and Blood into Magic emails. I'm like, mm, I know, that's a little weird. But uh, that said, I guess if you play either of those or any of those games, like, go for it. It's not quite Keyforge, which I thought was dead, but apparently isn't now. But, you know. Yeah. But, it, like I said, it, this is a shower thought I had before we came up with with the topics, and so it was kind of this uh, serendipitous thing where you and I were just talking, and it's like, magic is so weird right now with finance, and it's hard to say, like, you know, the vendor perspective is still really business as usual. We don't really care about the RL stuff because we'll still yeah. buy and sell and make margin, et cetera. But, like, as an individual, what do you do now that, you know, dual lands of well, 1.5x since when we were going hard? Like, yeah. Speaking of duels, the headiest topic we have in the, these two episodes. <laughs> so, the reserve list. Do you like it? Do you think it should stick around? And if it stays, do you think there'd be trouble? Make it double. Yeah, if it goes, it's going to be double. Yeah. Uh, so, I'm I'm of two minds about this. Mm-hmm. I played back when the reserve list happened. And I like the reserve list because this game would not exist if it wasn't for the reserve list then. Uh, I think as a vendor, and even as a player, I would much rather have moto-priced underground seas than $500 underground seas. I also understand that, like, you know, people say, oh, the game wouldn't be financially viable if that was the case. But look at Pokemon. Pokemon doesn't have a reserve list. They can just reprint that stuff. Mm -hmm. They just differentiate it somehow. So that argument to me is like, okay, now maybe maybe there's weight to that. I don't know. I don't really feel like there is. But I'd much rather buy and sell $10, $50 UCs than one $500 UC yeah. as a vendor. And personally, I don't like the cost barrier for legacy. Yeah, Format is great, and I wish more people could play it, but they can't. Uh, the, you know, Dan Bach noted reserveless troll love you dan uh is very well known as you know invoking promissory estoppel which is primarily something used in real estate law and the argument he raises is brilliant it's if there is even a 0.1 percent chance that hasbro loses this lawsuit they can't do it because they owe it to their shareholders i i wish that was not the case because i would love for it to go yeah but 
there we are. Yep. It's it's here. I'm not necessarily a big fan. I like that it's there because it saved the game. I don't know that if there was a way to get out of it now, I would say don't get out of it. Mm-hmm. I think I'm actually okay with the reserve list going somewhere. Uh, uh, yeah, and I, I think this topic's going to dovetail nicely into our next one. And for me, the reserve list representing a barrier to entry for these formats now compared to years ago when the price of power was like $200 for a Sapphire is ridiculous. But at the same time, at the same time that all these prices are going insane, Watsi is no longer supporting constructed paper formats that are tournament format eligible at the large scale tournament level. So what does that mean? It means that if they hadn't painted themselves into the into a corner years ago with the loopholes that they closed on the reserve list, they could do something about this for the casual market that is driving this demand in regards to reprinting and removing the reserve list. As a collectible, I think we absolutely need the reserve list because as a collectible, you don't need to or have to or be owed the original version of this card. And I, I brought this up as, would I love to read Action Comics number one? Sure. Am I going to pay almost four mil for a copy of it? No. But you know what? I could get a reprint for $30. I could read it digitally. And yeah. those points will dovetail into the next one. So would I love it if Watsy could gold border a chunk of the reserve list, a la collector's edition and, and international collector's edition, absolutely. And just sell uh, a box, 40 duels, and then a, a bunch of the highly played uh, EDH reserve list cards. I would love that as an EDH collector set. And at the same time, amend the tournament rules to allow gold border cards at the store level as official proxies or something like that so you could have people play legacy more i don't need them to to redo the power and let vintage exist at the store level i think vintage existing at like the three of paper events a year with that barry is perfectly fine you know vintage players yeah. and old school players can sit in their ivory towers and i'm okay with that yeah. that deck's good it, agreed but getting people to enjoy these formats that are unnecessarily quote-unquote gate-kept is, to me, something I would look into as as Watsi. That being said, a lot of the pushback you're going to get on them is, well, you don't need the best option for these slots. You could play Growing Rights of Hitlerlock instead of Gaia's Cradle. You could play any number of dual land alternatives as opposed to the original dual land. And I'm going to link a, an article by Dana Roach that came out last week uh, on the Commander's Herald about exactly this and proxying and EDH and like table politics and how a lot of the request for proxying at the EDH level really boils down to proxying for power when you really look at these arguments. So yeah, for Watsi as well to just kind of come out and say, okay, here's this gold border thing and it's legal in these formats that you play at the kitchen table. It's an additional conversation you need to have with people as well because it's going to turn out that people will proxy for power in EDH and it kind of destroys a little bit of that dynamic within EDH as a whole. But I think that is something to deal with later on when you're actively gatekeeping people out of formats they would like to play. Or, hear me out, you could bring back at the paper level if you were to allow your proxies at the paper level. They could amend their tournament rules at any point in time to allow this stuff. They absolutely yeah. could, and they could start having large-scale legacy events again if they wanted to, and that's how they could support the format. Because it's not like there is so many cards within the format that cost so much because they're on the reserve list. It really is the land base for legacy that is extremely expensive. Outside of that, it's just playables with light reprint rates, and they're things like, for instance, Reanimate. That just needs to be printed a few more times, and they can do that in, non- in other supplemental sets because it's not a reserve list card. They just need to find the right place to put it. And that's a different issue they can solve. But these are all solvable issues that can dance around reserveless clauses if they didn't paint themselves into that corner originally. Since they have, then you bubble up to everything you talked about with primary Estepel, et cetera, and the shareholders, stakeholders, who are the ones kind of pushing Watsi to close these loopholes when they printed Mox Diamond and Memory Jar as foils in uh, from the vault 
sets because the promotional loophole still existed. I think part of the problem, too, is that, and this is something that I think is always fascinating to me, is when you have cards like Reanimate that are worth a lot of money, that are, you know, in decks that are tiered in a format, you reprint those cards and it tanks the value of those. But the reserve list cards in that suffer from the eyes syndrome, similar to EDH. All of a sudden there's eyes on that deck and more people want to play it. And then, you know, Underground Seas and Black Blue Reanimator, when that was a thing, go up in price. So it's it's interesting that I think a lot of people don't think about how the reserve list affects cards that can be reprinted and vice versa. Yes, yeah. Because that's always interesting to me, so. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's always the the pushback of like, are right, you can't have your cake and eat it too here. You can't have the reserve list cost nothing, but your cards hold value on the on the resell. Yeah. Because the reserve list props up that ability. <clears throat> so it's like there's a, a level of give and take here that you've got to kind of to get with. And I, I, you and I will always kind of lean on the fact that like the reserve list saved this game financially, but it's also damning when it comes to, to play. And, Modern, yeah. Yeah. And, and when it comes to these kinds of conversations and discussions, you need to really separate like fact from emotion here and set aside the fact that, like, okay, you might want these cards to play in EDH, but do you absolutely have to have them? You know, and then, yeah. ha- and then have that open discussion and open dialogue. So to dovetail to uh, this next section... Does Moto have a future? And we upcycled. This is a tweet, right? From yes, uh, it was a Facebook message, okay. actually. Okay. From uh, 2019. someone asked. Yeah, from 2019, someone asked the Magic: The Gathering Facebook uh, when they announced Arena. Does this mean MTGO is dying? And the response was, "We have no plans at this stage to discontinue MTGO in favor of Arena." There are a lot of people who've invested a lot of time of money, and it wouldn't be fair to simply cut it off without proper compensation strategies in place. Moving into the future, you'll see how MTGO fits into the digital magic ecosystem with our soon-to-be-announced roadmap. So this roadmap happened. Mm -hmm. Moto is still having championships and everything else. Uh, Does Moto have a future? I think so. I am more hopeful now about Moto than I was prior to COVID. Okay. Uh, I think that the fact that Moto has enabled people to play EDH via pickup game Mm -hmm. uh, or participate in Legacy and the communities kind of come in on like, all right, well, if this is how we're going to play it, then we're going to buckle down and mana traders, double your subscription fee. I don't care. I'm going to play Legacy one way or another. Yeah, okay. And I think that dovetailing off the reserve list topic the longer the reserve list kicks around the more viable something like moto becomes like the more viable something like moto becomes because you can just play legacy and hang out and like sure you're probably having a land party which for those of you kids out there we used to strap a bunch of gaming consoles together or pcs with ethernet cable and that's how we played multiplayer with each other in the same room Mm -hmm. it was great but I, I think Moto is actually has a future now compared to what I said last year when I was like, Moto's dead, Arena's replacing it, Magic's dying, the sky is falling. Yep. So. Yeah, I, for me, it's hard to imagine the f- Moto having a long lifespan in front of it, but I don't think it's because Moto as a program represents any kind of failure or lack of adoption. And I think it's just because that software will have run its course and Arena just takes over. And and I've said this before on the cast. Once they figure out how to translate people's collections over to Arena and the stack can handle, you know, legacy and vintage, then, you know, that's it for Moto. That said, I don't look at Moto and Arena too differently. I just consider that Magic Digital. And for me, I think there's a heavy future in Magic Digital, and then everything you said is I absolutely agree with because it takes care of the reserveless problem. You can play uh, Magic on uh, on Moto, and if you actually want to see that happen and how it works, Commander Clash has been doing this for a while, and last week they actually noted how well Moto has been adopting over the last couple of months to actually handle multiplayer Commander 
especially with uh, the new general rule uh, when it goes to graveyard it actually triggers leaves the battlefield effects and then replaces and the ability to kind of pay out for games you can actually win prize of some sort so you could actually hold an edh based tournament on moto now which you couldn't at the beginning uh, of covid and they made a lot of improvements to the application as a whole and i think once arena is ready we'll see all of that move over magic digital i believe absolutely has a lifespan in front of it and it solves a lot of uh, accessibility problems for players i think it will be interesting to see how magic digital evolves in forms like magic legends uh and how it breaks into not just like the digital card game but how they try to monetize it outside of just the card game so yeah yeah i kind of we'll see I assume in short order, once Magic Legends hits most likely public beta, we'll start seeing sleeves and arena based on spell effects and things like that from Legends, because we've already got, like, what did I see? The Damnation border, I think, is very similar to the Call Time border, so they're just kind of, like, matching stuff right now. So, yeah, absolutely, they'll bridge that gap, and arena makes for a better application to do that in than Moto, which allows you to buy avatars. For sure, yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Next one. How do grading companies impact MTG Finance in your opinion? New grading companies. Not old ones. Not PSA and BGS. Things like CGC that have been around but just boomed in popularity. Yeah. I I think it's interesting. So new grading companies seem to be adapted a lot quicker in Magic than they do in like sports cards. Uh, Like SGC who, by the way, has some of the cleanest slabs in the world, like with black foam and everything oh, around there. I Great. actually have an SGC case. Um, yeah, it's like gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, you know, there's this new company in sports cards called HGA, Hybrid Grading Approach. So they actually use AI to grade their cards. And they're new, so they're not widely accepted yet. Any progress in industries like this takes time. There's not immediate adoption. But I think that once you see places like that start to push the envelope, it's the opposite of the GP problem we've had for a few years because competition breeds innovation. Yes. And I think that the more new companies we have break into this, the better it gets. I think the next thing is, you know, when you look at, a company like CGC, which is booming in popularity. They've been the go-to in comics forever. Yeah. Uh, and they just started doing, like, decorated slabs for comics, where if you send a copy of Spider-Man in, they've got a few pieces of Spider-Man art that you can literally get, like, done up here in the label of your slab. Oh, so it cool. just looks like it's Spider-Man spewing webs on your grade or something. Huh. And I think that when new companies emerge, that does two things. Uh, One, it dries up raw stock. Because I know plenty of people that are waiting to submit because the queue times are miserable right now for BGS and PSA. But when somebody new pops up like SGC or CGC, they're like, great, I'm going to ship them. Don't care. You'll grade it. It's fine. So when the raw stock dries up, Obviously, the raw cards go up in value. It also drives the value up of the trusted grading companies. Uh, why you would trust someone like PSA where you can reslab or BGS and get like a two-point difference? Whatever it happens, we all accept it. That's the reality of the industry. But it pushes those up as well. Now, something you may see that I think is interesting is a little bit ago, BGS had a problem with some of their slabs where the adhesive could be melted off and you could just crack it raw without shears or anything without damaging the card. And I think that that is something you have to watch out for with some of these new companies as they iron out the details uh, is there does get to be a little bit less reliability. And I think that say in a year, BGS uses AI grading. They've got the software that runs it, the hardware that runs it, it's all automatic. There's no margin for error anymore. I think that may actually devalue the current grades. Yeah. Because you'll see like, well, this is an 8.5 after an AI was doing it. And this was a nine before. Yep. Yeah. They're probably worth the same at that point. So I don't know. I, I think it's always interesting because the, 
financial aspects of slabbed cards are, you know, your high-end territory. Mm-hmm. These these are for the collectors. These are for the people that are pushing the financial aspects of the market, your whales, your Gary V's, whatever. Uh, so I think that these new companies pushing that a little bit more is only good and gives more power to the layman yep. Yep. and the industry that doesn't have infinite money for slabbing fees. Yeah. And one of the things uh, about HGA that, that you noted at the beginning, uh, like you mentioned with CGC, is actually the stickers themselves within the slab. And we have yeah. a, a, a couple of images, and you can see that you know the, they match the colors on the slab to match the the players' teams. So it was kind of a curiosity of, okay, if they move out of sports cards and they move into a collectible like Magic or Pokemon, do we get cool and interesting stickers which appeal to people for reasons yeah i i i would love to see like a scalding tarn masterpiece with a matching slab i just think that stuff is cool because i'm all about the aesthetics so you could tell what it is before you have to read the card absolutely yeah no i i like new i like new grading companies but only after somebody else goes through the process and basically proves that their grading can be trusted because for me like that's really what it is up front. We've seen like some very questionable grades come back from every large company in the space over time, and it's oh, yeah. the human element that really just kind of drives that. So as long as the overwhelming majority of grades that come back are, are decent, then I'm all for new competition in the space because, like you said, innovation or competition breeds innovation, and, the, and that pushes the market. And you look at companies like... PSA and BGS who've been doing this for so long that whatever our turnaround times are, it doesn't matter. People trust us. Whatever our fees are, it doesn't matter. People trust us. So with infinite wait time, if you know companies start increasing price for cards over time, eventually you'll see less adoption of those slabs in the interim as new alternatives come up and take a share of the market space away. After that, once those grades are, are proved to be reliable, the AI works for not just sports but other things as well. Well, now these other companies are left behind, and you have to innovate. You have to catch up, and we're going to see a lot more, hopefully, reliability in the space overall. And to me, that's kind of exciting because I've been sitting on cards for way too long to get graded, and I don't want to wait that long. Yeah, and don't and pay I, like two or three times what I should have a couple months ago for this. I, as an example of the wait, I have a friend who submitted some Pokemon in June. And they haven't even started grading them yet. So, yeah. But he dropped off with CGC on January 21st, and they're done in shipping back now. So, yeah. yeah I, I think, it, it, yeah, whatever. I, I don't know how departments work at CGC. I'm still waiting for a comic from like November. It's fair. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's just it's an outstanding <laughs> eBay auction. I have let the feedback on. Great. Uh, but that's not a personal, it's a personal thing. It's not a, uh, a finance thing, so I'm I'm yeah. fine. They got back to me on my question about if it was stuck at CGC and if they had information, and they were like, no. <laughs> so great, thanks. Yeah. I'll keep waiting. I'll send them my thumbs, and then I'll order the black and white art graded because why not? Okay, there you go. So last question for the for this two part series. This is our, our patron question. What makes a set good? Um, direct quote: From what I can tell, people want a set that is great and limited. Ten to eighteen spells that get used in standard. One to five spells that get used in modern, and maybe maybe one spell that gets used in legacy or vintage so this is this is something we kind of touched on in the first half financially but not in terms of playing and i think this sums it up really well uh you obviously want a set that's designed for limited because you're going to be drafting it i also want a set that's balanced and doesn't need two to three cards banned from it across any formats I get that sometimes it happens, like a card here, a card there, sure, whatever. I think in terms of legacy and vintage, I'm good with like one card every set that gets used, but isn't necessarily format defining or warping. Yeah. But if I get one card like True Name Nemesis or two cards like that a year, I am through the moon. Mm-hmm. More than that, if I get Oko, Uro, Astrolabe, uh, Hogak... Urza, all that stuff in a year, I am less cool with that. Mm. But I I think that, that that actually almost perfectly sums it up as like one to five spells in modern. I like at least one spell that sees play 
in Legacy, but may not be a staple in every deck. Yeah. Uh, props if it's something that doesn't go in a blue deck. Um, even after Oro Renoko, please, can we be done please yeah. be done? Yeah, uh, for me, it's a little more top down in terms of formats. I, I like spells that are sets that have an, a decent impact on standard, but don't warp standard because when you have a set that doesn't, I'm on cat, then you just have a clunker overall, and it's just not going to oh. do that well. So I like you know well balanced sets for standard. If something hits modern immediately, it one it's most likely going to be a cheap spell, not necessarily a creature, and I'm fine with that. Or it's something like way over the top that you're going to cheat in, and at the same at that point, it's going to go in all the old, old formats anyway. We're looking at Omniscience, you know, things, something like yeah. that. And I'm kind of uh, okay with that because everything balances out. Um, the idea of a spell hitting immediately in Legacy and Vintage for me is a little more concerning because to me that means now the format's going to play around that spell and I wasn't even thinking about anything from Modern Horizons. I was thinking about something like Fatal Push. That's just really efficient because of how those formats are built around those creature sets. I like something a little more subsumed in, like, Monastery Mentor. That creature was around for a very long time, and it took Paradoxical Outcome, a card that, again, had been around for probably about a year before or more before it hit in Vintage. And yeah. I think that's okay. The format eventually warped around those cards, but it took so long to get there that I'm okay with that amount of time that, that it took. You know, when Legacy gets Faithless Looting and now you have, like, Mardu-ish Reanimator, I'm, again, okay with that. I don't need Stoneblade getting three CMC Teferi and warping a format like that. It didn't, but I don't need that happening, you know? So, to me, it's even more of a delicate balancing act. But I would be okay seeing almost nothing fall into legacy overall okay. because that generally means that the format is going to kind of change around it because something as innocuous at, as fatal push was played in grixis delver stone blade every blue deck could also play black so it's this weird kind of balancing act like that and then like vintage is vintage and you just have to pay attention and like just chainsaw that format down if you want and like yeah you deal with that format with either a scalpel or a chainsaw whatever you feel is more appropriate to the point in time you like when you have ren and six and oko and karn and astrolabe and or like and all that stuff to deal with in a very short period of time like that's way too much for vintage but at the same time they're pushing other formats and ren and six doesn't even really pop up anymore in modern so it's like it was yeah. Red and Six the problem, or is Vintage the problem? Vintage is the problem. Like, so I, I'm. But okay people do that. dumb things in the format. It's great. Yeah, and Red and Red and Six did kind of rewrite Legacy for a period of time too, so they had to cut right. that loose. And but that came off off the back of Modern Horizons with Hogak and all that. And then you had so many cards that fell into that format that were unnecessary because they they overshot way too much with Modern Horizons. Modern Horizons felt like Urza Block again. Yeah. But with creatures. Yeah, but with dudes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I'm less cool with that part. Yeah, so for me, I, I like a top-down set that starts with standard and impacts there, and I'm honestly fine if nothing shakes out into older formats overall. Okay. If, if I were to take what you said and just move it up a layer where if one card moved into modern a year, I would be ecstatic with that. Fair. Because to me, that means we're, we're cherry. And for a set that's supposed to filter through standard down... I think that's perfectly okay. If you want cards to impact uh, Legacy and Vintage, then fucking do that in Modern Horizons, man. Like That's fair, yeah. I, I guess, yeah, that I would much prefer they do it in a supplemental set than they do it in, like, a standard print set. That's fair. Yeah. Like, that. that's kind of how I feel. I, I just did this one raw. I read the question. I'm like, I'll think about this later, but I got to remember Fatal Push and, like, Faithless Looting as being, like, not, like, fuck-ups per se, but, like, this is where we are. These are the kind of cards that really impact the rest of these formats. Like, yeah. And here we are. Um, but if I could never have to play Sealed or Constructed with sets like Amonkhet again... Oh, God, yeah. Then I would be happy. But, Same. Hmm. All right, picks. You ready? Yep. All right, I'll go first this week because I said so. Which that I, works. I feel is like my mo for when I go first. It is. So uh, <laughs> we're gonna. I'm leaning back onto zombies again this week, but I'm moving out of mono black. 
Oh, so, okay. I'm looking at uh, Havengolich from Dark Ascension. 4-4 four, four for 5, 3 in Demir. Uh, colorless activated ability. You may cast target creature card from a graveyard this turn. When you cast that card this turn, Havengolich gains all activated abilities of that card until end of turn. So, uh, interesting card overall. The zombie theme, as I mentioned on the previous episode when I talked about Cemetery Reaper, it does fall into blue, etc. But Havengolich has more widespread applications than just Zombie Tribal. And I picked this because we're finally seeing an uptick on it. Although, and I'll note this later, it's a little dicey in regards to um, pricing in the short term. We're looking at a real long-term spec here. Okay. So, uh, EDH playability, uh, it's like, I call it pseudo-reanimation lich. Uh, it plays well in like base Demir decks. You know, you could be Grixis or just Demir, four colors, whatever have you. Anything that really wants to dump a large amount of creatures into the graveyard for value, like Moldrolfa or Sadisi Brood Tyrant, or combo out the like uh, Cedrus. You know, you can try and grind out with a on the creature plan playing um, what is it, Gisela and Garolf, and you'll see this on the the list of highly played generals, and just stick to the creature plan. Just replay, like, recast everything for value. Maybe, maybe some activated ability or some ETBs on it, whatever. And that's that's perfectly fine. So. Playability on this is pretty high overall because for the most part, if you're not mono-black zombies, you're blue-black X-zombies, and like we're good here. Um, so while this isn't a reanimation spell per se because it doesn't put the creature directly into play, it's more like a creature flashback, and Lich allows for versatile gameplay across all strategies and decks, ensuring you're able to really to extract a lot of value from your graveyard. So I'm hesitant to say it should be like kind of first string card to consider when you're starting with Demir based combo, graveyard combo, or zombies or wizard tribal, but it's uh, an incredibly quick, powerful, and repeatable way to, as I mentioned, extract value from your graveyard. And it is a wizard, so it is. Uh, in regards to the timeline. It slowly, slowly started to trend upward in the last few weeks, and I expect that to continue through the next few sets, culminating in, again, the new Innistrad set. So I've been tracking this since, like, early January, and the buy list on this has stayed pretty steady, but the market price seems to be a little volatile, and it seems like if you catch the buy list on the right day, you can arbitrage. So this is what I meant by it's a little iffy on the price, right? So we're looking to get ahead of everybody again. Strixhaven is full of wizards, and we know the focus seems to be on enemy-colored guilds now, meaning there's going to be little immediate Demir support, though we could see a lot of Izzet wizards that fall into a, a Grixis-based build with this card. I doubt it. I think that'll be fairly light. And knowing the Innistrad sets are split vampires and werewolves, the expectation I have is that they will still stay true to the established tropes of Innistrad, and we will 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 receive additional zombie support. In yeah. That set. So this puts our timeline based on organic demand and the roadmap of standard around a six month mark. If you were to buy in today, though, because of that volatility uh, and a rather large delta between the open market and the vendor market in terms of retail price, open market is about two fifty, CK is about five dollars on the retail side. The opportunity for arbitrage doesn't exist quite yet. Uh, I would not be surprised if the timeline shortens based on uh, EDH content, so if people start playing this again. But um, it seems just to be this overlooked kind of casual crowd card. And looking at Innistrad, that's about a year out. So I do have a note here. And... Um, while Lich is from the original Innistrad block, my expectation is that we will not see a reprint as we are focusing not on zombies, but werewolves and vampires. And like our last return, we will get low, lower level support, not top level, meaning we won't yeah. get a lot of cards that interact with this. We'll get a lot of like two, two zombies for one. So we won't get an immediate view from this set of like, oh, oh there's this awesome uh, blue card that interacts with zombies like Rooftop Storm in the original Innistrad or uh, not Drog Skull Captain, that's the spirit, uh, the spirit lord, but there's a blue-black zombie spirit, a zombie lord in the original Innistrad. I don't think we're going to get that kind uh, of support. So, yeah. Like, so when I say top-level support, that's what I mean. We're not going to get those kinds of zombies. We're just going to get curve fillers for limited and maybe, like, 
some constructed obtinence. And I know this was kind of a scattershot explanation of this card. It's just we have a lot looking forward to look forward to in the next year. I want to get ahead of this now, and the sawtooth volatility that we're seeing in buy price overall leads me to believe that every time CK puts up quantity, people are filling that for the buy, and they have a decent retail market on this. Of note, the commander printing of this card, they are buying for $2.30, which is basically the market price of the Dark Ascension version. And they're buying 23 copies of that compared to the Dark Ascension version, which they're buying 17 of. I would still go for the Dark Ascension version because uh, the, the commander printing of 2017 has like the lighter border, the coin at the bottom, etc. So this is just a personal preference. And I believe once this card goes, it's it's gone. We might get it in another commander set, but at that point in time, it's kind of too late. Demand will have picked up enough that we'll be able to out this for profit. That The other way to look at this is because there is that large delta between the closed market and vendors and the open market on TCG player, once this sells out at two and change, obviously the market is there for close to five. So if Bialis doesn't catch up in short order, you can probably relist in a couple of months as we head through Strixhaven and towards the D&D &D set and out for profit on TCG player. And that, that's perfectly fine too. I like working with Bialis, so I don't mind holding the couple copies that I have, you know, until then. But if you want to turn this around and shorten the timeline from, I mentioned six months earlier and a year truly, if you want to shorten that up even more, just go to TCG Player, list it for four or five dollars, and you should sell it. I think the interesting thing too is, you know, like you touched on with reprints, it is plain specific. And knowing that we're going back to Innistrad and we're focusing on Twilight. I also don't think we're going to get zombies. The other thing is, we just got an is it giant. So there is a distinct possibility that we may get blue, green, or black, white wizards out of some of the future sets, yep. which only increases the viability of this card in terms of like color schemes and EDH playability. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wizards seems bent on like, for, and I, I think this is good kind of breaking tribal identity and going in every direction they can with it. Mm -hmm. So I think long-term, as the tribes start to do that, cards like this that are in two colors become better because there's more chance that they get tribal support in multiple colors, which may be in combinations people play. Yeah, I think if you search Gatherer or Scryfall for Zombie, the only color that doesn't come back is red. Yeah. So as long, yeah, exactly. So as long as you start with uh, black, blue, X, you know, you're perfectly fine sliding this into any two or three color deck. Even with red, as a general, I don't know who you would helm it with. I'll look, I said, unless you want to do the Grixis thing with Cedrus at that point, and you're just graveyard value like Moldrotha. Yeah. And I, like I said earlier, I think that's kind of the important thing to remember about this card. You get to recast, recast your creatures from the graveyard so that triggers every ETB ability. Like in Cedrus, where I play this, I'm getting back Archaeomancer, I'm getting back Deadeye Nav, and like things that just combo out immediately. If I were playing this in Zombies, I'd probably get back Grave Titan and large ETB triggers like that. And, Big fatties. Yeah. And I think once people, I mentioned uh, Commander content, you know, I think once people actually get to see what this card can do, that's the push that will close the gap between the retail, uh, sorry, the open market retail uh, value and the closed market vendor market retail value real quick. I'm uh, sticking thematically also with last episode when we were asked what formats we would vend in, and I said exclusively modern if I had to choose one. So my pick is Eidolon of the Great Revel. Uh, I chose specifically for purposes of picks, journey, though the same price history holds true for the Masters 25. If you take a look at the stocks graph on Eidolon, uh, you can see that every now and then it peaks, and the peak corresponds to modern season, then it dips down then it peaks, and then Masters 25 hits. Masters 25 hits, and you do see a little bit of a price decrease. It doesn't fall immediately, but it is a gradual decline over about six months to $3. Right when Throne hit, we were back in modern season, 
card goes back up to about $8 low. And then COVID hits and modern season goes away and it starts going back into the valley. This card's cyclical. It's as cyclical as it gets. Every, looking back, it looks like every year we get a little bit of a bump in January. Sometimes it's big and then it'll come back down into the valley. Well, we hit the valley. So I think that this card is due for a rebound when? Well, when paper events happen. So unfortunately, there's not much of a timeline. But the thing is, Modern is kind of wide open right now. And as long as Modern is wide open, people will build Burn, people will play Burn, because it's fun. Yep. You just mess around with it. Who cares? It's great. There's also, I don't think this is in the deck. It might be the um, Mono Red Prowess deck. Yeah, it is in Mono Red Prowess as well, which is good again. Yep. So as long as those things hold true, well, great. Every, everything is gravy with this. And I think that if I had to put a timeline on it, obviously it depends when paper events happen. If I had to do that, uh, six to nine months maybe. But I think that getting in now at about, we're sitting low at about four to five dollars, you would be able to trade this out. And this is something that is going to be more trade than buy list. And I do want to make a point of saying that. It is very much a trade not buy list card mm-hmm. when you get out you'll be able to trade it out at like eight nine dollars no problem and i think that were at me i'd be going for like shocks fetches whatever is staple at the time for the burn guy that only needs eric mesas so he can fetch path and in canyon no not canyon slough baked canyons sunbaked canyons yes sunbaked canyons that's the other one uh so i think that you know it's it's a good reasonable play yep. i think that as long as modern exists, which as far as I know, it's not going the way of legacy. So as long as it doesn't go the way of legacy and just get destroyed dead, yeah, we're fine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think actually one of the most important things you mentioned is like outing this to trade. Violist, yeah. sure, over time, but burn is one of the easiest decks to get into perennially for any format. Yeah, and you don't need 100% maximize 75 to be able to play and win with modern burn. So you can take your time to build that deck out of trades at the store level or trades with the store out of their stock. And this goes a probably a longer way sitting in a binder once we're able to get out into the world and play paper again than it does to buy a list after that. Yeah. You know, I would assume Modern receives the same pomp and circumstance it had before. And at that point, people are going to be looking for the cards they missed, the cards they were longing for, the cards they had to sell for various reasons. And getting in now ahead of that is definitely the the smart play. I think I had a set or an extra set of these and i was not upset yeah to have that because it's something that like you said it's super easy to get out of because burn is easy to build it's also and i assume it's the same for you when someone would show up for modern and ask for a deck i'd hand them burn uh i almost built burn for a player that was looking for it out of my trade binder i See? Yeah. So I, I can tell you, as a matter of fact, because I was there for two or three weeks in a row where somebody just kept wandering around looking for burn cards t- for trade. And this person just wanted to play burn. And every yeah. meta has one. Every meta has a burn player or a new burn player, what have you, or somebody that just wants to learn the format. And it's kind of like that level zero deck because your deck is very much, you know, one plus two equals three deck and you just do your thing you don't need a wide breadth of format knowledge it's a great starter deck so yeah i would hand somebody burn over like blue red yeah that requires format knowledge yeah absolutely and like the red section of my trade binder is generally flush with those cards for a reason yep you always want goblin guides you always want eidolons and the nice thing too is eidolon is like as of last 
time vending at GPs, there is no booth that's paying you less than $5 for an Eidolon of the Great Rebel oh, yeah, ever. Like, yeah. uh, it's it's just like Foil Delver used to be the $10 bill that would even up every trade during Innistrad. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm 10 off. You got a Foil Delver? Great, we're even. Yep, yeah. That's kind of how it is. No, absolutely. And I think it's very timely now that we're seeing Modern really come back after being oppressed by Uro and of course what is all over all the queues but this chicanery yeah so by Adnos look (laughs) yeah look I'm sad because I finally can just retire all the cards back to their appropriate binders and boxes I don't have to just keep a deck box with like perfect fitted 75 and no outers for some reason because I'm weird (laughs) (laughs) I mean I'm not going to lie, most of my trade stock looks like that, so I yeah, can't really that was, say anything. That was a deck, so it was like, I don't know. It's, it's just a pure up. aside. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, on the way out, I had, like, two modern decks spread across three boxes for some reason, and I, I can't explain why. And only Adnos was the one that was unsleeved. It was a, a straight 75. It's like I either needed to buy Dragon Shields because I forgot I bought a million off Mass Drop when that was a yeah. thing, or I oh, just... Man, was still I, I was still in the process of shitting I hadn't got off the pot yet with uh, yeah. actually putting all the cards back I, I really yeah. can't tell you maybe I was moving gemstone caverns around I, I don't know and I don't want to hedge it but that is it for this two part series guys You know, thanks for sticking with us thanks for asking questions uh, as we were doing this some of, it, some of the questions we were asked kind of led to this we've been building up over time and we like doing these when things are just kind of, you know, low key on the vendor side of things, and we're all just kind of standing back watching MTG stocks and all oh, that Stang is running up the scoreboard. Juxtapose hit four hundred dollars from Legends. Is Moat still a hundred thousand dollar card? I don't know. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, that is yeah. That that was a beauty oh, yeah. that I talked about. Yeah. Buy on TCG Player. Oh no, they're all. Oh wait, no. Oh. I'm filtered. Oh, no, we're back down to a thousand now. Yeah, it was a good like week when they were when a moat was a hundred thousand dollar card. But uh, for at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter, Patreon, Facebook, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcast. Did I mention YouTube? Yes. Uh, I am okay. at Halt. I am Reptar. Audible. We're also on Audible. Yes. <laughs> I am at Halt. I am Reptar on Twitter. You are. Yeah, Thirsty Sizzler. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>